0: This is the Ethics, Law and Armed Conflict um, seminar discussion, panel discussion, on the legacy of 9-11. And it's worth perhaps reminding you uh, what uh, ELAC, or Ethics, Law and Armed Conflict, are doing. It's an interdisciplinary research programme that aims to strengthen law, norms and institutions to restrain, regulate and prevent armed conflict. Drawing on the disciplines of philosophy, law and international relations, ELAC seeks to develop a more sophisticated framework of rules and stronger forms of international authority relating to armed conflict. Research activity addresses all aspects of armed conflict, including the recourse to war, the conduct of war and post-conflict governance, transition and reconstruction. The themes of the programme are broadly the prevention and responsibility to protect, Proportionality in the laws of war, and international criminal law and transitional justice, and of course also nuclear non-proliferation and opportunities for disarmament. This programme has a close relationship with the Changing Character of Warfare programme, and I'm the deputy director of that programme, Dr Rob Johnson. If you've not met me before, hello. This panel uh, is going to consider the overall theme of really how um, Afghanistan has changed in the character of war, because of course that was the starting point for the post-9/11 legacy. Uh, but more broadly, how this has raised new ethical and legal issues. The speakers, I'll introduce in just a moment, will speak for between 10 and 15 minutes each, and there'll be an opportunity for Q&A, and I'll try my best to guide some of those discussion points. The speakers, very briefly, first of all, David Rodin, who's the co-director uh, and senior research fellow of ELAC here at Oxford, um, has written, of course, many, many books, and when I look through his publication list on the website, it is a, a, uh, quite a replete Um, fest of of writing. Uh, But suffice to say that um, amongst the most seminal works uh, that he's done, um, he's written Just and Unjust Warriors with uh, Henry Hsu about the moral and legal status of soldiers uh, with Oxford University Press, and has most recently been the author of Morality and Law in War, in Sybil Scheipers and Hugh Strawn's edited volume, The Changing Character of War, published uh, in Oxford 2010. Uh, His next going to produce, although it may have already come out, actually, uh, Ending War in Ethics and International Affairs, Uh, which uh, we're we're looking forward to very much because that seems to be so of the moment. Um, And he will look at some of the areas of Afghanistan, including the broader theme of developments in law and morality uh, today. We've also got with us uh, Professor Jennifer Welsh, um, Professor in International Relations here at Oxford and uh, at Somerville College, who's been an editor uh, with um, others of the United Nations Security Council and WAR, uh, published by Oxford University Press in 2008. Uh, also, civilian protection in Libya, putting coercion and controversy back into the right to protect, um, which is, uh, has come out or was coming out in yeah, ethics, come has come out in ethics yeah. and international affairs, and also has written in international affairs, uh, a normative case of pluralism, reassessing Vincent's views on humanitarian intervention, which I'm sure um, puts her very well qualified to talk today, and also uh, not least, Dapo Akande, uh, who's uh, not only a university lecturer in public international law, in of law. Uh, but also a Yamani Fellow fellow, uh, at St Peter's College here at Oxford. He's written a number of uh, things too, uh, all of which are pertinent to tonight's discussion, including sources of international criminal law uh, in the Oxford Companion to International Criminal Justice, uh, and also a working paper on prosecuting aggression, the consent problem, and the role of the Security Council. Uh, And all of them have a great deal of richness to offer, say, to tonight's discussion. So I'm going to call, first of all, on uh, Professor Welsh to uh, get us started on this issue of the legacy of 9-11. Over to you, Professor. Right.
1: Well, thanks very much, and thanks for coming. And uh, for those of you that uh, it's your first visit to an ELAC event, I hope we see uh, lots more of you over the course of the term. We've got some flyers at the front of the room, and we have an active website, so I really welcome you to come to as many events as your schedule uh, allows you to. I'm just going to start by... Um, challenging one commentator's view of 9-11, which some of you might have seen. Um, And that was Francis Fukuyama's op-ed in the paper right around the time of 9-11, where he said, really, I'm paraphrasing, but really, this event wasn't as big a deal as we all thought it was. The much bigger, important structural change in international politics over the last, when we look back over 50 years, will have been the rise of China, not um, 9-11. Um, But nonetheless, I want to suggest that that 9-11 and its aftermath has had an enormous impact, if not in in strictly structural ways, um, although we could argue it has there too in terms of the international system as a whole, certainly with respect to ethics, law, and armed conflict and the issues that we want to talk about tonight. And given we don't have a lot of time, I wanted to sort of pull out. What I'm going to suggest to you are two kind of boomerang effects. I'm going to call them boomerangs in that I I think we went from one position to another position and back again the way that boomerangs do. The first boomerang I think I'm more comfortable with than the second one. The second one, I'm not quite sure it is a boomerang. And so I'd be interested in your your thoughts on that. Um, So the first boomerang is really around the, the issue of authorization for um, the use of force in international politics. And I think the boomerang here is that we went from the immediate aftermath of 9-11 from a firm commitment to multilateralism to out here to more unilateralism, Mm -hmm. and arguably back again to multilateralism. So let me just elaborate a little bit on what I I mean. So, the Security Council resolution that was passed the day after um, the terrorist attacks, 1368, was a unanimous statement of support for efforts to respond uh, against those who had, in in the words of the Security Council resolution, aided, supported, or harbored the perpetrators of the 9-11 attacks. And in addition to that, you may recall, in addition to the unanimous Security Council resolution, NATO, for the first time in its history, um, invoked Article 5 of the North Atlantic Treaty, um, that an attack on one was an attack on all. And so there was an enormous show of multilateral support for action. Interestingly, though, um, the United States did not at that point take up the implicit offer of a Chapter 7 authorized resolution for its its subsequent actions. It wanted to maintain flexi- flexibility in terms of how it would wage whatever action that it took. And at that point either, it didn't seek the explicit assistance of NATO either. Instead, what you had uh, about a month later, October seventh, almost 10 years to the day, was the US informing the Security Council of its exercise of the right of self-defense. And of course, that was a more um, unilateral or independent action involving the use of force with um, some close allies, including Canada, which participated in that very early stages. (laughs) Um, But of course, as we know, during this period, we saw um, later on in the case of Iraq, although there's been lots of debate about the link between Iraq and 9-11, we saw another unilateral um, use of force in this post 9-11 period without authorization of the Security Council. Yet I think 10 years on, when we look back, we see that multilateral authorization and multilateral support for the use of force is more important than ever. So there is the boomerang effect. Um, Of course, Iraq, which began uh, unilaterally, um, became gradually after the cessation of official sort of military um, hostilities under the rubric of the UN. The UN was called in to provide legitimacy to the occupation authority. Of course, NATO, as um, you all know, took on a huge role in Afghanistan um, through ISAF. And indeed, subsequently, we've seen Actions involving the use of force which have required security council authorization. So I was struck by the fact that in the days leading up to the recent action that was taken in Libya, NATO made very clear that it would not act unless there was a clear legal basis, and that legal basis was security council authorization. So we, we moved from strong multilateral support, which in fact, ironically, the United States didn't take up in quite the way that might have been expected in the early stages, um, to some unilateral shows of force, back to a practice within international society where multilateral endorsement is hugely important. Now, I wouldn't say that we could talk about this in discussion, that this multilateral endorsement or authorization is unproblematic. It's problematic in all kinds of ways, which relate to the composition of the council itself, the failure to agree, as we've seen in in Syria. Um, And we've also seen, of course, the incredible burden placed on NATO in terms of multilateral action, and the questions that arise within multilateral action about burden sharing. Um, But nonetheless, that's kind of my first boomerang that we've, we've sort of seen that effect. The second is a a boomerang in terms of the rationale for the use of force. Um, We moved from, in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, from a standpoint of reprisal and self-defense to an expansive war against terror, um, and as I'll explain in a moment, accompanying that, a huge emphasis on nation building back to potentially a, must, a much more modest approach to war aims. Now, if you cast your mind back, and I was reminded of this because I found on my computer an unfinished op-ed that I had started right after 9-11 um, railing against what the US, if you, those of you who remember this, called the mission in the first couple of weeks. Do you remember it started off as Operation Infinite Justice? Yes. And there was all sorts of um, opposition and criticism, particularly from Muslim groups in the United States who said, you know, it's only God that meets out justice. Um, And, of course, so they changed the name very quickly from Infinite Justice to Operation Enduring Freedom. Um, But the the change was more than in the name. Uh, There was a change um, in the mission itself. And And it struck me that... George Bush, who had campaigned um, during his time as the Republican nominee against nation building, explicitly said, you know, we don't do nation building, um, very quickly became, by the end of October uh, 2001, embracing nation building as um, a part of the, the war aims um, in Afghanistan. And in addition to that, humanitarian concerns became very central to the evolving rationale. Now, I think there were two reasons for that, um, one having to do with an evolution in American thinking itself about what was required to, to win this war, um, and a belief that sort of harkened back to some of the Thinking that had gone on in the, in the course of counterinsurgency campaigns decades earlier about winning hearts and minds of the Afghans. And so humanitarian rationale became very quickly a huge part of the justification. But also because a number of other states were becoming involved in the Afghan campaign, particularly with the creation of, of ISAF. And when you think about that um, development, and of course a big part of the Afghanistan war has been the involvement of US allies in very significant ways, um, that they themselves um, needed to embrace a much wider conception of their national interest. And I think this is something that's quite remarkable about the last decade, is how the national interest as a rationale for action, military or otherwise, was expanded in this period. Um, Of course, it was expanded in the sense that an attack that was harbored in one region of the world um, could literally activate the armed forces of states like Germany, Canada, not just the United States, in such a dramatic way. But there was also, if if you look at the national security strategies of the U.S., um, the European Union, Canada, Germany, how they began to talk about the national interest and the impact of transnational threats like terrorism, globalization. Um, that it was no longer threats close to home that activated the national interest. But there was also, even if you were to to strip away security threats, a civilizational message that came through some of this expansion of the national interest. that. Unci- and this is very much Tony Blair's, I think, approach to the expansion of the national interest. And it began with Kosovo, but it certainly expanded after 9-11, that as a civilized nation, the UK had to respond to uncivilized acts wherever they occur. Uh, now, this, this led to a number of, of dimensions, which I think Dapo and David want to talk about. Um, the one that I just want to flag that I think is hugely important for thinking about how 9-11 and its aftermath changed the character of war was, of course, the, the on-the-ground activities that were associated with nation-building and a humanitarian war. And in particular, what was very much in vogue, particularly in the, in the mid-2000s, the joining together of de- defense, diplomacy, and development, that on-the-ground now you had military officers, development agency representatives, and diplomats all engaged in a common enterprise. And this had enormous implications for how those organizations worked together, for what was in the remit of their activity. And I'm thinking particularly here of development agencies who hadn't engaged in such fraught security environments um, in quite the same way. But it also meant for some development and humanitarian organizations, that their unmilitarized space that they were used to operating in became very securitized. And there were all kinds of implications of that, which we're still um, living with. Now, I guess the question I have um, for all of you that I've been thinking about is Has that been a boomerang, too? Are we moving from a much more self defense, reprisal, Um, rationale to begin with for the waging of military force, the boomerang out to an expanded conception of the national interest, uh, humanitarian war, potentially back again. And there might be all kinds of um, reasons for the boomerang back. Uh, Most uh, most flat-footed, if you will, would be just sheer budgets of um, industrialized countries and their militaries. But also, I think, perhaps as a result of the Afghanistan's experience, and you see it even now in the rhetoric of what we're trying to achieve in Afghanistan and how that has been scaled back, um, a return to a much more limited and much less ambitious agenda. Whether that's a bad or a good thing, we might discuss. And whether you agree with me that there's been a complete boomerang. I, as I say, I'm still not completely convinced myself. Um, but that's what I wanted to throw out uh, for discussion today. So I'll stop now.
0: Superb. Thank you very much, indeed, Jennifer. Um, I'm going to turn immediately uh, to David and ask if you would like Great. to comment on legacies on
2: them. Thank you very much. Well, um, just to reiterate, Jennifer's warm welcome to all of those um, of you who have not been to ELA events before. It's great to see you here. We hope that we'll see a lot more of you. And also, just a word of thanks um, to our chairman today, Rob. It's great to have you here, having crossed the floor from CCW to ELA (laughs) events. It's it's really wonderful to be able to do this uh, this joint event. So thank you. Um, So um, I wanted to reflect a little bit about or on the changes that I've seen um, occurring within the, the ethical and normative space in, uh, in, in our approach to warfare in the last 10 years since 9-11. And I think what's really striking is for anybody who has been involved in, um, with military organizations or in the military space, or even as a, you know, as a casual observer, it's just been striking the transformation that has occurred in, in, a, in a very, very significant number of areas within the way that we think about the ethics, the morality of using force. So what I want to do is reflect on a, a few of those changes as I've seen them, reflect a little bit about what the causes of those are, and what relation that has to 9-11 itself, and, and then just a little bit about where we may be going from here. So I mean, as a philosopher, which is my um, Discipline Within the the, the philosophical tradition, um, questions about the ethics of war are traditionally divided into two components, the so-called ad bellum, which are considerations around the justification for going to war, and the so-called jus in bello, which are the rules uh, or regulations for how one ought morally to fight when one is in war. And I think what's very interesting is that over the last 10 years, (coughs) there have been almost contradictory tendencies occurring within the ad bellum and the envelope. What do I mean by that? Well, I think mean, what we've seen on the ad bellum side has been um, a number of expansions or attempts to expand the right to um, go to war, to have recourse to war. Whereas what we've seen on the in side has been a very substantial contraction or tightening in terms of the regulations of what is permitted to be permissible conduct, at least for Western forces engaged in the kinds of wars that we've seen since 9-11. So let's start with the ad balance side first. So one of the most striking, I think, of these expansive revisions of um, of, of justifications for going to war has been the development and um, uh, and and, and um, uh, acceptance and concretization of the norm of responsibility to protect that that Jennifer <coughs> has a huge amount of, of work on. Uh, so this was obviously a um, uh, an idea that was attempting to come to grips with a, uh, a problem that had been inherited from the 90s and earlier, the question of when it was permissible for a state to intervene militarily in the affairs of another state when they were engaged in atrocity or genocide against members of their own community. And um, a body called the International Commission on Intervention of State Sovereignty, funded by the Canadian government, produced a report almost at the same time as 9-11 proposing a concretization of, of this norm. Um, this was was then um, substantially ratified in 2005 by the UN General Assembly. The document and the norm itself had a number of, of elements of which military intervention was only one component. Uh, and. For a substantial part of the 2000s, many people thought that was that would be the, the less important, the less significant element of it. But Libya, I think, has really once again placed that front and, and center. And, and I, to my reading, the debates now are very much around around when to intervene in these desperate situations, how to intervene. But that that kind of fundamental assertion that there can be a moral uh, and also legal rationale to intervene has has quite substantially been settled. So there's one very clear example of how the ad bellum. Rights had been had been developed uh, during the 2000s. Two other areas in which this had, um, to lesser extent, been the, the development of the ad bellum, I think, involved a um, an idea that there was a right to engage in preventive action. Uh, so, um, one year after the 9/11 attacks, mm-hmm. the Bush administration published uh, the National Security Strategy, in which the administration asserted that there was um, A right for states to engage in preventive action, they didn't refer to it as prevention, but that's effectively what it was, preventive action against an emerging threat before that threat had actually attacked, and perhaps before that threat had even become a real and concrete threat. Now this, I think, this kind of proposed or emerging norm never really gained the traction that responsibility to protect it. It It remained very, very marginal, very, very disputed, and I think that the the um, the uh, uh, you know within the legal uh, school as within the the moral um, within moral thinking there has been very very substantial pushback against that attempt to develop this this new and more expansive norm. Um, a third. Uh, developing expansive norm that I think we've seen within the ad bellum context, uh, which relates very much to Afghanistan, was a, um, uh, a, an expression of a, um, a justification for using force against a state that had not itself used <laughs> force against due attacks, but had facilitated um, others in attacking you. And this was exactly the case of Afghanistan. So the rationale for um, U.S. intervention in Afghanistan was not that the Afghan government had itself attacked the United States, but that it had facilitated al-Qaeda's attack uh, and had failed to um, hand over uh, Osama bin Laden and other al-Qaeda members <laughs> um, following that attack. Now again, I think that that, that, as a, that was a new norm. I think it was not explicit before. Uh, and I think that that probably lies somewhere between the responsibility to protect and prevention dorm. I think it's gained some currency, but I think that there's still there's still uh, dispute and controversy over that. So that's on the ad balance side. Now, I think what's really striking is when you contrast that with how Western states have actually fought their interventions in theaters such as Afghanistan and Iraq. And there, rather than an expansion of war rights, you've seen a very striking and substantial contraction. I think <coughs> you, you, can, you can see this in a, in a, in a whole range of different contexts. But one very striking um, context is if you look at uh, the way that Western armies have configured their rules of engagement. So at least within the last, um, within the last two to three years, Rules of engagement have been very, very restrictive um, to the point that strikes against um, predetermined targets uh, essentially um, are, are, are done now with a presumption that there will be no civilian, civilian casualties whatsoever. At least that, that, that has to be the reasonable presumption going into these attacks. Uh, the situation is different if um, it's a situation of, for example, close air support being called in uh, in the context of, a, of an active engagement where one's own troops are on the line. But even there, uh, with the um, the approach that was uh, that was really um, uh, developed by David Petraeus and substantially continued through the um, through the tenure of, of Stanley McChrystal, there was a much more restrictive uh, approach to um, to issues like like civilian coll- um, uh, collateral damage. So these are, this is this kind of a very striking uh, very striking divergence, as it were. Two really you know very very new developments in the way we're approaching war since nine eleven, seeming to pull in different in different ways. So what could be lying behind that? Well very, very difficult things to um, to assess because these, these developments obviously have, have, a, have, a, have a whole range of different strategic, political, legal, and moral um, determinations. But to, to a philosopher's eye, one very, very clear uh, element in this transformation has been what you might call the individualization of warfare. What I mean by that is the fact that individuals and small groups of individuals, but not states, are increasingly playing a role within warfare, both as protagonists, but also, and very significantly, as bearers of rights within theaters of war. And that idea of individual human rights and uh, persons within the theater of conflict as bearers of rights, I think, has had a really profound transformation <coughs> in the way that theorists of the ethics of war have viewed a whole range of questions within the ethics of war. And I think that, that that kind of normative push, as it were, has had a very significant effect on the way that soldiers have conducted operations. I think it's had an effect on, on the shape of the emerging shape of the law as well. So, how is this kind of individualization, this focus on individuals as bearers of rights and as actors, how is it kind of being responsible for these, um, for these developments? Well, I think the connection with the development of responsibility to protect is, is very, very clear. Right? So, it's, it's the conception of individuals as bearers of rights that has really enabled the argument that was originally made by ICCIS, the argument that says that state sovereignty is conditional on respect for human rights where that respect and protection for the rights of individuals is not present, the sovereignty of states can become forfeited in particular ways. And there's a very, very clear implication there. On prevention and, um, and the right to use uh, force against those who haven't attacked but have harbored, uh, harbored those that do attack, the connection, I think, is less clear. But I think what's, what's really striking in that debate is that the debate was posed very much in terms of rights of self-defense. And the right of self-defence, although that can be viewed as as pertaining to, as it were, states, you know, states' right of self-defence against other states, has also increasingly been cast in terms of rights of individual self-defence. So if you think on the other side of that argument, if you think of those like myself who are arguing against the Bush administration's expansion of the right of self-defence to include preventive action, One of the primary arguments that was made there was to say, look, individuals become liable to defensive force because they have engaged in a wrongful act, a wrongful attack against others. In cases of preventive military action, this is really problematic right? because you're using military force against the state and also against soldiers who have not yet engaged in a wrongful armed attack against other parties. So how can we understand? those armed personnel, those soldiers that you would kill in a preventive war, how can we understand those as justified killings in the sense that the persons you are using military force against have done something to forfeit their, their, uh, their rights? So I think we see the language of rights, the status of the individual, appearing very, very strongly within that debate as well. Now, when you look at the, the more kind of tactical questions—the Petraeus doctrine and the Crystal doctrine—what a lot of people will say is, well, you know, it wasn't so much ethical motivations; it was it was a realization that the strategy had to change because the previous strategy was not working. Now, I think that's true up to a point, but you have to ask the question: Well, you know, why was this previous strategy not, not working? Right? Why was the realization made that the more civilian deaths you had, the stronger you made the insurgency? Well part of the explanation to that I think obviously is that there has been a shift in the acceptability right, the moral acceptability of those kinds of harms to civilians and I think that that shift has also very substantially had at least at least within the West had to do with the rise of the idea of individuals as, as bearers of rights. so I think we see it very, very strongly there as well. So where, where are we kind of going from here? And I, I think maybe I'll just end by very briefly um, discussing a development that I think kind of perfectly encapsulates these dynamics <coughs> and the unstable point at which we've arrived in, in this development process. And that is the use of um, drones and <coughs> unarmed weapons to target particular individuals, as we had with the killing of um, al Awalaki. Lucky. lucky. exactly. Thank you. Lucky. Um Now, what's really striking about that is, first of all, it's, it's a perfect example of the individualization of the use of force, right? Rather than targeting a person qua combatant, we're targeting him as the person he is for the particular acts that he, as an individual, has taken. Uh, and we do that in a very, very individualized way, right? using a, a lot of intelligence and using highly, highly accurate targeting technologies, which we which we hope will not uh, will not kill civilians nearby, though you know, it often does. Now, that killing um, produced a great deal of anxiety within the US. And the, the and the um, the discourse here was not so much about human rights, but about constitutional rights, of mm-hmm. course, because he was an American citizen. But you can see that this is this is on the spectrum of, of the same idea. Now, you know, as soon as you pose this question from from the kind of question of human rights, um, there's a bit of a paradox here, right? Because on, on the one hand, you know, if if we believe that people have rights that they that they only lose by engaging in certain kinds of wrongful action, then killings like the killing of Al of <laughs> ought to be seen as all to the good, right? You're killing a person because of the things that he has done. We can argue about whether in that case the killing was, was justified. But there's a case there that, that this person was being killed because of the action that, that he has taken. Now, the worry, of course, is, you know, is that, well, you know, what, you know, what, what does that say about a state who's willing to engage in, you know, essentially, an extrajudicial killing? on the basis of intelligence that probably would never stand up in court um, and without all of the due process rights that we've come to expect of a a civilized and morally justified government. I think it's a very real concern. But if you then transform that set of concerns into the context of of a normal military campaign, where you're killing persons simply because they're wearing a uniform, without any regard to their individual um, responsibility, culpability, liability for the action in question, then it's really a different order of magnitude of concern. So it's really, I mean, I think it's a very interesting example because it really really highlights the, the kind of complete disconnect in terms of the way that we think about justifications for using lethal violence within a context that looks quasi judicial as soon as we are naming and targeting an individual person, and the kind of, you know, at one level, quite indiscriminate random killing of persons in a way that is entirely disconnected from their agency individual responsibility or individual liability, and I think that 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 kind of disconnect raises really, really interesting and and troubling questions as we we work through the way that these developments might pan out in the next 10 years.
0: Well, it's good that you end on the judicial issue, because we'll turn immediately (laughs) to (laughs) that agenda to pick up on the legal aspects of it, sorry no doubt. Thank you.
3: Thank you very much, Rob. Um, I wanted, in addition to thanking Rob for sharing the event, I also wanted to say that Rob himself is, is an expert on these issues from yet another disciplinary perspective, and he's written on, well, this is hot off the press, isn't it? It is not it yeah. yeah. So it's Rob's new book, The Afghan Way of War, Culture and Pragmatism, A Critical History. So that provides yet another perspective in looking at these issues. I want to pick up on actually one of those issues that David touched upon when he was talking about the use ad vellum. And one of the things that David talked about was the argument that a state can use force against another state that hasn't attacked the first state itself, but has harbored or supported groups that have um, carried out the attack. So what I really want to focus on are the changes in international law since 9-11 and arising as a direct result of the response to 9-11, the changes relating to the use of force by states against non-state groups. Right. This is a direct result of, of 9-11 because, of course, this was the response to 9-11. And as I will um, try to describe in, in the time that I have, the justifications that were employed by the U.S. and others in going into Afghanistan are justifications that have since been employed by many states, and in a way which goes completely, which is completely at odds with the position before 9-11. So... The question essentially is this. To what extent can a state use force in self-defense against a non-state group that is based on the territory of another state when that other state is not directly responsible for the non-state group? Mm -hmm. So that's the question. When can a state use force on the territory of another state against a non-state group when the, the state Um, where the force is being used is not directly responsible for that non-state group. Now, let me take you back to the position before 9-11, both in terms of the legal position and, I think, the generally accepted practice in international politics as well. Now, in 1986, the International Court of Justice delivered judgment in a case which is now called the Nicaragua Mm -hmm. case. It was a case between Nicaragua and the United States of America. Nicaragua brought the case against the US, alleging that the US had unlawfully used force against Nicaragua by supporting the Contra rebels who were operating in Nicaragua. The US argued that it was acting in self-defense. To be more precise, it argued that it was acting in collective self-defense. So the US said, we are using force against Nicaragua in support of the surrounding states that are bordering Nicaragua, namely El Salvador, Honduras, and Costa Rica, because the US said Nicaragua was supporting rebel groups in those countries, particularly in El Salvador. So the basic argument was this. Nicaragua was providing arms and logistical support and bases for rebels who were fighting against the government of El Salvador, but who were based in Nicaragua. The International Court of Justice held that that may be true, that Nicaragua was providing uh, these rebels with financial assistance, logistical support, possibly bases, but that this did not amount to an armed attack within the meaning of Article 51 of the UN Charter, which entitled the United States and these other countries to use force against Nicaragua. This is 1986. Okay. So essentially, the International Court of Justice held providing financial assistance, logistical support, does not rise to the level of an armed attack. It may be unlawful, but it does not justify a use of force in self-defense. One question that, of course, we have to ask ourselves is, was the ICJ an outlier? in saying this in 1986. I suggest that the court was not. Just the year before, the UN Security Council had adopted a resolution which had unanimously condemned Israel for its attack on the PLO headquarters in Tunis, in Tunisia. What was the Israeli argument? An argument that Israel had used, of course, consistently in the 70s and 1980s, that there is a non-state group or a terrorist group which is based in Tunisia, i.e. the PLO, which is plotting attacks and has carried out attacks against Israel, and we're entitled to use force on the territory of Tunisia or any other state against this non-state group. The Security Council had, on a number of occasions, condemned South Africa in the 1970s for a similar type or pattern of attacks. If you recall, in the 1970s, South Africa conducted raids against the so called frontline states, i.e., Mozambique, Angola, etc., etc., basically using the same argument. There are these terrorist groups that are based in these countries conducting attacks against us, and we are entitled to use force against these countries, well, against these non state groups that are based in those countries. These countries complain repeatedly and Even in the Security Council, they found support for this argument. So despite the protests of the United States in 1986 at the judgment in Nicaragua, it was condemned by a number of American, well, commentators particularly, but I suggest that the position that the ICJ took in 1986 was not outside the frame of reference that had been applied in international law and by, by international organizations at the time that first and essentially the position was for a state to use force on the territory of a non-state of another state against a non-state group you had to show a strong link between the state on whose territory the force was being used and the non-state group against which you were using force and the ICJ said this link had essentially to be one of sending you had to show that the state that you are attacking has sent or has effective control over that non-state group and this language from a General Assembly resolution. Now, why did the ICJ say this? Remember this is the Cold War where we had, or the context is the Cold War, lots of proxy wars. Practically every civil war that took place at that time, maybe still now, there was there was support for the rebel group or the non-state group by an outside power in terms of providing weapons or finance or some sort of logistical assistance. Mm -hmm. If you think about it, unless the rebels make the weapons themselves, they must be getting it from somewhere else. (laughs) And the logic was, if you allow attacks against any state that provides weapons, you automatically internationalize any civil war. You provide justification on which any civil war can be internationalized. And it also provides for escalation. So this is our world pre-911. 9 okay? There is controversy about this. Israel is very unhappy about this. South Africa is very unhappy about this. But on this issue, I would suggest that they were pariahs. Even the US, and that's why I stressed the unanimity in in the resolution in 1985, even the US occasionally but repeatedly took the view that this international law did not allow for this type of use of force. That's where we were on what's the day before September September 10th? So <laughs> I, I was trying to convert the dates from, I was going to say on 8-11, and then I thought, no, 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 that's <laughs> America. what, 9-10, is that right? Yeah. Yes. 9-10, you know, you know what I mean, the day before September 11. Anyway, 9-10, that's, that's our world, 9-10. So what happens after September 11? As we know, a few weeks later, force was used as has been described. Um, by Jennifer and by David, and Rob talks about it in his book, against Afghanistan, right? And here, the U.S. is now making an argument which is at odds with this position that was taken before 9-11. The U.S. argues, and I'm sure you all remember. George, but actually, I'm sure you don't all remember. This is the,
1: excuse me,
3: this is a detour. This is 10 years on on the assumption that some of you are undergraduates or graduate students, you're probably 12 or 13. And this this is one of the depressing things about being an academic. The age range (laughs) that we (laughs) teach stays constant but every year passes by and we are one year older. Anyway, Mm -hmm. I'm sure you all remember you don't don't look, thank you, thank you Rob. Mm -hmm. You all remember George Bush saying specifically you're either with us or you're against Mm us, we're using force against those who harbor as well and this is the big change the assertion that it is legitimate to use force against those who harbor and this position that was taken by the u.s is a position that was endorsed quite widely by a number of Mm -hmm. states so jennifer referred to resolution 1368 which was passed on 912 and 1368 accepts that the US has a right of self-defense. In other words, they accept the US argument. And the UN Security Council repeats this in Resolution 1373.
1: 1373.
3: Jennifer mentions again, NATO, for the first time, invokes its collective self-defense provisions, Article 5, of the North Atlantic (laughs) Treaty. So this is all NATO countries accepting that the US has a right of self-defense. But of course, the US only has a right of self-defense against Afghanistan if you accept that the US is entitled to attack countries who not just send, but who also harbor. The uh, OAS, um, Collective Self-Defense Provisions, Organization of American States, was also invoked. Uh, the ANZUS Treaty, Australia, New Zealand, US, with a similar collective self-defense provision, was also invoked. So there was quite widespread support for this position that was taken by the US. So this is the direct legacy of 9-11. But what is more significant about this is that this argument has not only been invoked by other states, but it has now been widely used in a number of conflicts across the world. So this is now taking it away from the, uh, the, the Afghanistan context. But we see Turkey going into northern Iraq on several occasions since then using basically the same argument that says there are terrorists, of course, everybody's a terrorist now, on the other side in Afghanistan, sorry, in Northern Iraq, and we're entitled to use force. We see uh, Russia using precisely the same argument going into Georgia to um, take action against Chechen rebels. We see um, Rwanda, Uganda went into the DRC, Again, in this period since 9-11, this led to another ICJ case that I will come to, (coughs) taking action against uh, non-state groups. They went into the Democratic Republic of Congo not to fight against the armed forces of the Democratic Republic of Congo, but to fight against non-state groups that are based in the DRC. We've seen um, Colombia use force in Venezuela against uh, the FARC rebel. So, how many continents have I gone through now? I've gone through Europe, Africa, uh, South America. We've seen um, recently, not last, well, no, in the last, no, 2010, that is last year, 2010, 2010, uh, Saudi Arabia using force in Yemen without the consent of, of the Yemeni government. This is now widespread. Um, countries, Using force against non-state groups based on the territory of other states with this same justification. And of course, the. US has taken the same argument and used force in a number of other other countries Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, the, you know very many other countries. And this has become, I would suggest, one of the defining features of armed conflict today. Many armed conflicts that are of a transnational character do not involve two states fighting each other. Many of them involve one state using military force across the boundary, but against a non-state group. And this is all premised on the assertion that it is justifiable to do this. Now, what's the position in international law? I suggested that in the Nicaragua case, the ICJ suggested that this was not lawful. But international law is based on well, in large part on customary international law and on state practice. And the state practice is now so widespread that I think it is difficult to argue that the law has not changed since 9-11. I think this is one of those areas when we can see a direct impact on lawmaking of the actions that happened after 9-11. Having said that, the International Court of Justice, in a couple of cases, um, in particular, um, the advisory opinion that the ICJ gave on the Israeli wall in the occupied Palestinian territory. The ICJ has said in that case and in another one, um, it's it held on to its view, its 1986 view, the majority of the court. Some of the judges, in their separate and dissenting opinions, criticized the majority for holding on to this view, but they've more or less held on to their view that there needs to be sending by one state of this group before that state becomes liable to a use of force in self-defense. I think the court, as a matter of law, is wrong to do that. I think the practice has changed, and it has decisively changed, but the court has held on to that. Let me just turn to another issue, and this is the issue of how some of these changes have had an impact on um, the use in bellow from a legal perspective. In other words, the the rules that govern the conduct of operations during an armed conflict. So one of the key questions that has arisen as a result of this phenomenon that I've just been talking about, one of the key questions is, how do we characterize these transnational conflicts against non-state groups? Because international humanitarian law, the law of armed conflict, divides armed conflicts into two. We talk about international armed conflicts and we talk about non-international armed conflicts. (laughs) And the significance of this division is that the rules that apply in international armed conflicts, i.e. state-to-state conflicts, are more numerous than the rules that apply in non-international armed conflicts, or what one might have called internal wars or, or civil wars. But I'm sure you can see that these types of conflicts that I'm talking about now appear to straddle this divide. (coughs) So on the one hand, these conflicts are transnational. They do not involve a state using force on its own territory, as you would see in a civil war. And one of the reasons why the rules in internal conflicts are more limited is because states have been more reluctant to accept the regulation of international law when dealing with these internal conflicts. And I'll just touch very quickly on one of those changes. So on the one hand, the use of force is transboundary, transnational. But on the other hand, the use of force is, as IR people would say, asymmetric. It's not state-on-state. So it has features both of international conflicts and features of non-international armed conflicts. And this, this raises actually very significant questions In relation to, for example, rules relating to detention. And this is one of the significant issues that has dogged the US policy in relation to Guantanamo, in relation to detention in Afghanistan and elsewhere. International law, the international law rules of armed conflict um, or, or IHL, has very detailed rules relating to detention in a non, in, sorry, in an international armed conflict. Either you are considering whether a person is a prisoner of war, or there are very detailed rules to do with detention of civilians. With non-international armed conflicts, we have nothing. No rules at all in international law. And this is the problem that the U.S. faced in Guantanamo in the sense that, on the one hand, the US was arguing that, well, we're fighting against this non-state group, and therefore, um, this is not an international armed conflict. But on the other hand, they were saying, look, we are using force abroad, and they're saying that this was also not an internal armed conflict. So effectively, the US was suggesting that we have a legal black hole here. This is neither international nor is it non-international And effectively, they were saying no law applies in that space. Now, they've since changed that position as a result of um, a number of cases in the US Supreme Court. But the fleshing out of the rules has continued to be a problem relating to US detention policy. It's also continued to be a problem, the fleshing out of the rules, in relation to some of the targeting decisions that David was talking about. And one of the key questions that arises here is what is the geographical scope of this armed conflict with Al-Qaeda? Again, you'll recall the rhetoric. This is a global war on terror. If it's a global war on terror against Al-Qaeda, it means we can fight anywhere in terms of we can target anybody <coughs> anywhere as, as long as we deem this person to be associated with Al-Qaeda. Or we can detain anybody anywhere on the globe. and a large number of the people in Guantanamo Bay were picked up in several places. Gambia, Bosnia, who knows, Oxford, you never know. But if it's a global war on terror, everywhere is a theatre of war, and those rules apply. And this is one of the challenges in trying to apply international law to this type of conflict, which, as I say, is prevalent now. Just outside the so-called war on terror context, a, a, a lot of states assert that this type of a lot of states assert this rationale and therefore also assert that they're engaged in conflicts with, with non-state groups I'll stop there.
0: Excellent, that is extremely good timing and, uh, and what is actually a very rich trinity, and on uh, the themes of trinity I'm, I'm very delighted that um, as an aficionado of studying Plashvitz that um, we've got no, not just sort of changes in the Character of war, but something about the unchanging nature of war, as uh, Clausewitz would have understood it. Particularly with your paper, the clash of reason, passion, and chance it seems to be still alive. This dynamic force, which we are all talking about, is still alive. Um, just while you gather your thoughts for questions, um, let me just uh, summarise, if I can, just for a moment. The boomerangs of multinationalism, multinationalism, and unilateralism, self-defence, and expanded expeditionary warfare conventional war to comprehensive approach, and perhaps even potentially transformation. Mm-hmm. David talking about changes in the philosophical underpinning of going to war and conduct in war, with questions remaining over things such as the, um, uh, the status of proxy war states, uh, in the defining of combatant status, and in the roles and responsibilities of states. And then also then uh, Dapo's uh, reminder of the, the problems of war against those uh, states which harbour terrorists or accused of harbouring terrorists, that profound change after 9-11. And now, of course, as you were just saying there, uh, really the, the difficulties of dealing with um, those uh, suspects, for what are better terms, uh, within states uh, when you were operating against them, uh, or even within one's own home state uh, in dealing with detainees. And uh, the case of sort of operating um, and assassinating Osama bin Laden within the sovereign state uh, of another country seems to be to speak very loudly to to what it was you were saying too. So I say a very rich trinity. I hope you've got lots of questions.